This is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the National Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we are offering five conversations from episode 55, our wrap-up of the Liver Meeting 22, plus from the vault, a segment from our wrap-up panel at International Nash Day 2022 earlier this year. Before I start, I want to note how information-rich this episode was. As a result, my conversation comments will sometimes be more about identifying the topics we've discussed and a couple of key points about each than it is about providing the kind of detailed narrative I usually attempt. This conversation starts with a different definition of pushing the needle toward action. Naeem Al-Khori mentions LabCorp's announcement simultaneous with this meeting that you can now get a reflex ELF test for patients with high FIB4 levels. LabCorp will compute FIB4 if the patient has a CBC and a CMP present. And as Naeem notes, this is similar to the Hep C paradigm where patients with a positive Hep C antibody test automatically get the Hep C RNA. Naeem describes this as a game changer for primary care where patients with basic CBC and CMP results can be flagged for advanced fibrosis using two widely studied, widely recognized non-invasive tests. Well, Al-Zawi compares and contrasts this with John Dillon's work in the UK with the Intelligent Liver Function Test, or iLift as they call it, which we discussed in episode 25 earlier this year. Since then, an abnormal iLift result now leads to an ELF test, which, as with the LabCorp program, makes it easier for primary care to identify patients with abnormal livers. Will cautions that we might want more research on different ethnicities and disease levels. And as he leaves the conversation due to having a poor internet signal, he notes one more trend in this meeting that we've commented on earlier this year, the researchers are working to link NITs directly to outcomes instead of linking to biopsy, and this is a trend he commends. For the rest of the conversation, Ken Cousy discusses advances in the use and research around PPARs, noting first the ongoing work with the pan-PPAR lanafibrinor, which is headed into phase three, as Michael Corman discussed in our interview at the end of episode 54. Then Ken goes on to talk about Poxel's work with PXL65, a deuterium-stabilized form of pioglitazone that generates greater activity of ER enantiomer, which is linked to mitochondrial benefit. And less of the S enantiomer, which is linked to weight gain. Stephen Harrison discussed this molecule and this item earlier this year in episode 48, known as the WOW episode. With over 7,000 on-site attendees and tremendous amounts of positive energy, Deliver Meeting 22 produced exciting presentations, debates, and insights on a wide, wide range of topics. As we wrap up our fifth and final episode covering this event, you can hear us exploring some issues we covered earlier from a different perspective and others we had never covered about this conference before this episode. So sit back. Listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the discussion on our LinkedIn discussion group. Name Alkuri. Another positive development I uh, witnessed, Roger, it's not in the meeting, but it happened at the same time as LabCorp announcing that now you can get actually a reflex ELF test if you end up having a high FIP4 in a patient. So LabCorp implemented the FIP4 if you have a CBC and a CMP. They will give you the FIP4 results as part of the end result you get. But now they have a new code for a test where you do FIP4 and then ELF is a reflex test. This is similar to the paradigm we have in hep c where you do the hep c antibody and if it's positive you get the hcv rna and i think this is going to be really a game changer because uh, elf is widely available so we're not counting on the availability of fiber scan or mri machines and it happens in a reflexive way so primary care physicians will have more confidence that if they're diagnosing someone with advanced fibrosis that this is based on two nits so i hope that this will meet widespread uh, successful 
use in uh, practice. William Elizawi. So, um, Naeem, I think that's really interesting because in the UK, you'll have heard that uh, John Dillon in Dundee has set up what's called the Intelligent Liver Function or iLift pathway. So that's exactly what you're just describing. An abnormal liver test goes through. If the ALT is up, a Fib4 is calculated, a liver etiology screen is performed and an ELF test, if appropriate, that's the recent addition, is added on. And that sort of demystifies the abnormal LFT pathway. And of course, what we're trying to do here is make it simpler for primary care physicians to find the people with significant liver disease. And I think that's really important. I just have a slight concern that we should probably still expect the same level of evidence that we have with ELF that we've built up over the years with Fibroscan and other, particularly MRE, with all the great work that you guys on the court have done. You know, one of the things that we probably ought to be aware of is whereas we have found differences in the accuracy of different NITs in people of South Asian ethnicity, we haven't seen that with transient elastography. And that data aren't available to us in ELF. So maybe what we need to do at pace is to see whether or not the ELF is as predictive in all different ethnic groups, in all different uh, disease subsets. One might consider whether connective tissue disease is a consideration here just a thought, and then we'll have that data. I'm really sorry, on and off, because of my very weak internet connection. You can make lots of jokes about the internet in Britain here, but never, I'll, I'll leave my European colleagues to laugh at me there. The one thing I did want to say was, I came away from ASLD this year, recognising that more and more of my colleagues are seeing that what they really want to demonstrate is whether or not the NIT or compound NITs uh, links to outcome. And a lot of it's moving away from the concept that the NIT must first map to the biopsy before we're allowed to see whether it maps to the outcome. And that, the game changer for me there, is the more of our colleagues start talking in this way, the more the FDA, the more the regulators are going to start to realise that actually biopsy, biopsy out may not be the gold standard if we've got great NIT in, great NIT out. And Naeem, what your work and the work of Mazin and colleagues and Steve, etc., I could list them all, really uh, convinced me of that. Well, thanks for that comment. Ken, I think you would say something about coming back to the nomenclature at the end if we had a couple of minutes. Ken Kusi. Well, I mean, the nomenclature was one issue. There are also some results of some drugs that were promising. So Nae mentioned Rismeniram. We mentioned that today we have pioglitazone, but again, we don't like that there could be a dose-dependent weight gain with the lower dose causing 1% weight gain less than a kilo, but the doses used in NASH of 30 or 45 milligrams, this weight gain can be 2 to 4%. So there's been an attempt to find a pioglitazone Glitazone version 2 that would have all the good and none of the bad. And again, it's a tricky thing. You may have seen last year in the New England Lanifibrinor is a PAN-PPAR. Uh, and in this meeting, the results of a phase 2B study with uh, Poxel were reported with a compound, which is Poxel 065, which is a deuterium-modified thiazolidinedione. And basically, they took 117 patients and divided them in placebo and three groups from low, intermediate, and higher dose. And let me just step one minute on what they're looking for with this compound. So what they did is 
is they there is a mix of R and S enantiomers in pioglitazone that are rapidly interconverting. And what they've done here is modify that molecule with a deuterium introduction that stabilizes it into more of an R, which is this form that has uh, benefits on mitochondrial function and uh, metabolism, say, to be quick compared to the S form, which is more what pioglitazone does and may be linked to more of that weight gain. So this deuterium stabilized enantiomer, PXLO65, is meant to be as efficacious, having, for example, benefits on the mitochondrial private carrier and less of the other effects. So long story short, people were treated for roughly nine months. And the, the, the most interesting finding was that they, in addition to some reductions in liver enzymes, which are comparable to with other agents, they found a pretty reasonable dose response in terms of reduction of liver fat that was up to 40% at the higher dose compared to 16.7 in the placebo arm. And they also found very interesting dose response improvement on fibrosis, which at the intermediate dose was 50%, somewhat lower in the higher dose compared to 17% in placebo. So that delta is larger than with other compounds and probably pioglitazone and also some benefit on the two-point change in the NAS score, which is again 50%, but only 30% on the placebo. So again, small numbers with 20 to 30 patients per arm, but going in the right direction. So this has led them to probably be very positive about future larger trial long-term studies. So interesting and in line with other PPAR, PAN-PPARs and with pioglitazone. So we hope that it will go forward. And then the question is, what was the weight gain? And the weight gain was minimal at the lower and higher dose and about uh, two kilos on the intermediate dose. But they had a lot of, in these small groups, outliers. So it's hard to tell if in the long term, this lower weight gain will be the issue. But it appears to be so. For example, they had less effect on adiponectin, which is a typical PPAR gamma effect, but still histological benefit. So exciting findings. And again, the field does need multiple agents with different mechanisms. There were also promising results with the FGF21 compound that you've been hearing from Akiro. There is also another GLP-1 glucagon agonist, which was PIMB. Vitudide, a mitochondrial uncoupling compound, HU6. There's been a lot of different mechanisms that seem very promising. And for a complex disease like this one, we would like to take them all and help our people. And now, back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next week with Shira Zelbersagi, probably the world's leading researcher on nutrition and NASH, along with Ken Cousy, probably the world's leading endocrinologist on NASH. Shira will be giving us tips about diet and self-management that will behoove all of us to keep in mind, particularly the Americans heading into our annual Thanksgiving food orgy. It's a great episode. You won't want to miss it. Until then, stay safe, surf on, and we'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye. Bye now.